This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracasts is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or hoping to level up your dev team, Laracasts was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at laracasts.com and thanks again to laracast for sponsoring full stack radio enjoy the show hey everyone welcome to episode 32 of the full stack radio podcast i'm your host adam as always and today it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show david hannemeyer hansen how's it going david good how are you great um so kind of just jump right into it what i really wanted to talk to you about today was kind of some of the technical details behind uh the new version of Basecamp that you guys put out last month do you mind kind of briefly going over you know what kind of happened there you guys did a whole big rewrite and what it's all about sure so with Basecamp 3, we were somewhat in the similar situation as we were with Basecamp 2, which was basically we wanted to make a bunch of changes to Basecamp at a fundamental level, redefine what Basecamp was, which meant looking at all the elements, how they fit together, how to use experience roles, all the screens, the major design, and so forth. And what we came to conclude again was that all these changes we had in mind uh, were not compatible with the existing application structure and they weren't compatible with what users of the existing application would want. So we basically once more decided that the right path forward was to start from scratch. And this starting from scratch was driven not from technical reasons, although all sorts of interesting technical aspects of it could happen once we chose to do the rewrite, but they were sort of focused off the fact that we basically just wanted a different base camp. And I've long, well, since base camp two, which was what, 2010 or 11, we started working on that, come to the realization that um, doing massive change to an existing application with existing users it's just not a good idea. It's a great way to alienate people who love the app that they have uh, because your new ideas might not be in great alignment with where they think the software should go or just with the fact that they've just spent years teaching themselves, their staff, their clients, everyone else that they're working with, hey, this is how the app works. So basically pulling the carpet out from underneath them just a poor strategy, a great way to alienate users and, and make them upset, which is, why would you want to do that, right? Like What we're trying to do is make Basecamp better, and better is, is sort of is a vague term, or at least it's a term in the eye of the beholder. Um, we've had, both when we introduced Basecamp 2 and now with Basecamp 3, we've had users of the existing versions of Basecamp say, that's not better. It's not better along the dimensions that I care about better. In fact, it's worse. It's a regression. You've lost things, the main things that I care about, right? So when we were thinking about better, we were thinking about better for someone who did not already use Basecamp, for new customers. Basically, making the best Basecamp that we knew how um, that would appeal to people who didn't have a legacy of usage of Basecamp. So that was the, the big goal, the big target that we just wanted to make the best damn base cam we knew how uh, with a predominant focus on attracting new users 
and then letting existing users continue to use the either Basecamp Classic or Basecamp 2 as they saw fit, or if we sort of were appealing enough with Basecamp 3 for their specific use case, then um, awesome, they could come on board with, with Basecamp 3 as well. That's awesome. I, something I was kind of interested in, I feel like for me as someone working at a software company, an element of the rewrite that I would find like really appealing is that it gives like the team the chance to kind of like attack something greenfield again, you know, and work on something brand new and kind of, you know, kind of build that new excitement again. Is there any aspect of that involved in sort of this, the decision making on, on how you guys decide to do these sorts of things? Absolutely. I think that's a very nice side effect. And I think it's a side effect that's been unfairly characterized by many in the technical community as sort of a vain or not sufficient argument for why you would, um, or not even a, I don't know if it's a sufficient, because I don't think it is a sufficient. You shouldn't rewrite your app just because, oh, Greenfield is fun. Let's just do Greenfield for the for the hell of it. But I think we've gone too far into thinking rewrites are just inherently terrible uh, and enjoying the greenfield experience of it is kind of a vain thing that comes at uh, at the cost of users. So I think what we got out of basically saying we have a bunch of design ideas for where the application should go that aren't compatible with the current version just allowed us to say, okay, well, now we're doing the greenfield. Let's get everything we can out of the greenfield experience, which both is a exercise in better design and sort of going back to first principles on a bunch of features and saying, hey, if you could make all your decisions over again and the only thing you had to care about was, is this version better on an absolute scale? Um, well, at least according to what we think is better, uh, then you can make a whole bunch of interesting new choices. And we got to do the same thing on the technical side, right? Um, got to basically revisit everything from scratch and say, is this piece worth keeping? Is it not worth keeping? Well, as it turned out, lots of pieces, of course, were worth keeping. But also plenty of pieces were new. And I enjoy that phase of the development of weighing the things that you have versus the new approaches and seeing what comes up heavier, right? There are a bunch of things that we pursued in Basecamp 2 that just fit right in. So, for example, the whole approach to caching, um, Russian doll-style caching, where you sort of nest caches within caches and uh, base their key expiration on key expiration rather than explicit expires, that was one of the things that we really pushed in Basecamp 2, fitted right in, right? Like, that became a, a key component of the new approach. Well, not new approach, I suppose. Of the approach we took for Basecamp 3. Then there were other things where we started far more from scratch. One of the things, for example, was the usage of uh, web sockets. For all prior usage of sort of live updating elements of Basecamp or Campfire or other applications we've done, it's just been straight up polling. And I think polling is one of those things that is in, in some ways an outdated technique, but in other ways also just something I think was, hey, it's surprising how well it works. And it's um, very straightforward and easy and quick to implement too, right? Exactly, right? So for Basecamp 3, though, my approach was, could I make WebSockets feel the same way? Feel as easy to work with and implement new features upon as I had it with polling? And that's how the whole Action Cable brand new framework we're putting into Rails 5 came about. That uh, we wanted to built on top of, of a lot of this interesting plumbing there is in WebSockets, but um, scope it down in such a way that it 
less of the technical underpinnings were sort of constantly just sticking out for you to stub your toes on and then wrap it in a far more approachable paradigm. And that paradigm was this notion of, of the cable, a single connection, and then the channels, this logic, application logic that you were layering upon a single cable and doing so in a sort of systemic way where you can attack these in a very simple form. Um, what happens when someone subscribes to a new piece of functionality or they disconnect from it. Um, and I think the DSL, the approach, the API we came up with in, in Action Cable really nails that. Um, it's just so easy to add new WebSockets functionality with Rails 5. That, uh, that was one of those major steps forward we were able to take because we chose to go with a greenfield approach, a brand new, starts from scratch, review every everything all over again and see what fits fits better this time around. Um, plenty of other stuff that went into Rails 5 that went through sort of that same evolution. Um, some of the other aspects, uh, Turbolinks 5, which is a major complete actual rewrite of Turbolinks, uh, was driven by the fact that Basecamp 3 not only was a web application in the traditional sense, uh, even though, I mean, also using Ajax and WebSockets, all these other modern approaches to, to web applications, but it was also a bunch of native apps, um, or rather native hybrid apps, where we wanted to launch concurrently with native iOS app and native Android apps. And we needed a set of patterns that allowed us to do so with tiny teams. And this is one of the things that's really been interesting me, for me lately is, is this notion of, or the intersection between technical patterns and organizational patterns. I think there's a lot of discussion in technical communities that focus far too narrowly just on the technical aspects of of certain architectural patterns and not nearly enough on the organizational constraints or nudges that would push one towards or away from certain patterns. And for us, this pattern of using the hybrid approach to native development, which in summary is basically do all your native navigation and perhaps some peak high fidelity features all native, but then do the broad swath of feature implementation as web views basically and make those web views feel native to such a point where most users most of the times actually can't tell the difference where does the native begin and where does the uh, web end and, and vice versa and that to me that's a technical pattern obviously right but it's also an organizational pattern because it's a pattern of productivity and reuse where you say and what we said well basecamp 3 is going to be a majestic monolith. It's going to have one main application backing it. It's not going to be a constellation of microservices. It's not going to be sort of this big web where you give each individual large team its own sort of little fiefdom or chunk of the world because we don't have a team that works like that. We have a team of about 12 developers that work on this. 12 developers that does everything at Basecamp. Native iOS app, native um, Android app, all the emailing stuff that we do, uh, web views for everything, and the main desktop web experience on top of sort of all the infrastructure needed for it. In other words, a comparably speaking for the size of the application that Basecamp is, a tiny team. 
Like most companies that are servicing the kind of user numbers that we have across an application as broad as Basecamp, far larger teams. So they can use different patterns, right? If you have, for example, 12 people to dedicate just to your iOS app, well, all of a sudden you go like, hey, why shouldn't we just write everything native, native, right? We don't need this web view stuff. Let's just do microservices. Let's do API endpoints. Let's do all these other things. And okay, that's fine. Uh, that might work very well for uh, companies that can have 12-person iOS teams, right? We have a three-person iOS team, two developers and a designer. We have a three-person Android team two developers and a designer. We have a handful of feature teams that does sort of the web work initially that's usually two people or three people. So we have to pick technical patterns that fit the organizational shape of Basecamp. And that to me is a really fascinating and interesting domain where it's not just about like, oh, is this better or worse on a technical scale as sort of an absolutist notion of better or worse. It is hey, is this technical pattern a good fit for our organizational shape? And that's a far more nuanced and interesting discussion, I think, which goes along the same lines of, of something I've been pushing for a long time, which is this notion that both in business and in technology, there's this notion that the bigger a company, the more credibility they have um, to inspire smaller companies on what they should do. So a lot of small companies, they look to, say, a Google or a Facebook or a Twitter, and they see, oh, what are they using? What kind of technology are they employing? What kind of organizational patterns are they using? And let me just clone those. Because if I clone those, like if they work for Twitter, if they work for Facebook, of course it's going to work for me. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> like, in fact, in many cases, it's the exact opposite answer. Whatever Facebook is doing, like do the complete opposite of that. And in many cases, I'd say you're closer to being finding patterns that's a good fit for your organizational shape. If you are a company of 5, 10, 20, or in our case, uh, just under 50, right? Because the kind of technical patterns and organizational patterns that fit organizations of 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people they're fits for those sizes. They're not fit for your size. And that battle is not highlighted nearly enough. People think, oh, I can just go with what's successful for successful companies. And you just go like, no, you're going you're gonna to have a bad time. You're going to pick patterns that work well with these huge companies with virtually unlimited resources. Um, say like, oh, well, this is what fits great when we, we have like five divisions with 25 departments with hundreds of teams inside of them. And you're just going to go like, no, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, yeah, anyway, that's a very long rant on organizational shape and, and your pick of uh, patterns. And that's one of the things that's been firing me, firing me up, especially about this um, microservices approach. I think microservices is a great tool for organizational shapes that are very large. Like at um, Amazon, Amazon was one of the, before it was even just called uh, microservices, we were just calling it sort of web services, right? My, Amazon was one of those early adopters of that, like everything should be a service-oriented architecture. And that makes total sense when you have an organization the size of Amazon where you have a lot of large independent business units that somehow need to collaborate, right? You can't collaborate across a technical organization of 10,000 people in the same way you collaborate across a technical organization of 10 people. 
you need completely different patterns. It's, it's in many ways that organizational parallel is quite close to the parallel of like on a technical level when you're, you're talking to RAM. You can talk in in one way when you're talking over the network. Well, you have to talk in a different way because there are orders of magnitude, in some cases, many orders of magnitudes, slower and harder to coordinate. Uh, and or, a technical organization of, of 10,000 people is a fucking super tanker versus like a technical organization of, of five people, which is like a, a rowboat, right? Like you're not going to use the same safety practices or patterns or anything else. These are just not the same thing. Do you think the whole microservice approach at a larger company like do you think the reason that, that makes sense there is because it's a way to like artificially constrain the team sizes no i think it's because the team size is already what they are but you need for teams to collaborate and if you don't do if you don't split things up in services and, and silos to some sense like uh, majestic monoliths are not that well this is my take given <laughs> of where I've been right now. I don't think they're that majestic if you try to do it at a, the scale of Amazon. Sure. Right? It doesn't work. You can't have a majestic... I should, I, I'll caveat that because actually some of the recent um, stuff that I've been reading is that like Facebook is a majestic monolith. Google, in many cases, is a majestic monolith in the sense that like they yeah, have these enormous, gigantous repos where like everything lives inside it. And I, I just go like... Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, I would have sort of assumed, um, or, and my intuition would lead me into saying, like, Amazon rather have the, the long end of it there and, and having a service-oriented architecture. When you have all these the separate teams spread out over all sorts of things and, like, they have to coordinate, like, that's a better approach versus at the small scale, the scale that I operate at, like the majestic monolith is this huge productivity boost um, and this magical pattern in many ways that uh, it's been wrongly discarded because people have been looking at giants for inspirations of ants. Yeah, I think it doesn't make sense to have you know, one person on a team who has to consistently work in four different microservices. You know what I mean? Absolutely not. Like when, when you can even have the same person work across multiple services at the same time, that's, to me, a smell saying you picked the wrong pattern. Like, if one person can grasp the entire stack of it, well, collapse it, collapse the stack. Versus if one person can't, if you need separate teams or you've chosen to have separate teams for these things, okay, now separate services can make sense. Yeah, cool. Kind of jumping back to the action cable stuff, I think it's obvious that you guys are using that for the new campfire stuff in Basecamp 3, uh, but is there... Anything else that you're using it for? I'm sure there's lots of other stuff that you're using it for. So I'd be interested to find out what sort of interesting pieces of the application the WebSocket stuff is sprinkled into. Sure. So we use it for delivering notifications of all sorts of kinds to everything that needs to have this sense of live. So in Basecamp 3, for example, we have a navigation bar across the top that says, oh, you have, there's, there's new messages in these chat rooms, there's um, new content being posted in these other base camps, and that stuff needs to update live. We updated both with these notification counters, little numbers, mm -hmm. but then once you expand the menus for, for those things, tell you exactly what's there. And then we also send out uh, web notifications, um, these little pop-ups that browsers now have natively built in. All of that stuff is running off the action cable. So someone connecting to Basecamp um, creates one cable connection, and then we layer these channels on top. There's a channel per chat room. There's a channel for this uh, navigation updates. There's a channel for the web notification pushes. Um, 
But all these run off, they multiplex off the same WebSockets connection, which is what's really neat about the WebSocket stuff we have an action cable is that you get the efficiency of just establishing one main WebSocket and then you're layering this functionality on top of it, but the way you impl implement the functionality is very separate, right? So we share the one connection, but we don't have to share sort of the implementation on top of everything. Like it's not like one class has both the logic to deal with chat and the logic to deal with web notifications and the logic to deal with these um, inbox updates. Are you doing like bi-directional communication over the WebSocket stuff? Like Yep, yep. So the main place we do that for is, is chat. Uh, when you write something in the um, one of the campfires in a Basecamp 3 chat, it goes over the WebSocket too. And that's, again, one of those, you don't, it's not so needed in the same way because if you're initiating the action, you can also just do a regular web request, right? Yeah. Like the main benefit of the WebSocket is that it's a listener pattern that exactly. you don't have to pull, oh, is there something new? Is there something new? But something new can just be sent to you when it's there. But there's still other efficiencies, like if you have an open WebSockets connection, you've already negotiated an SSL handshake, which in many cases, especially the further you are away from the server, is a big part of the perceived latency of something. Like I have many actions where when I'm accessing Basecamp 3 from Spain, those initial SSL handshakes, they take far longer than the exchange of subsequent information. Like they might take 300 or 400 milliseconds when the request itself only takes like 200 so getting rid of and reusing those SSL handshakes as much as you can is a real performance benefit. And I'd say that that's one of the big benefits of the WebSocket connection is this permanent connection already handshaken. So you can just use it to send stuff straight over the wire and it happens much faster. Cool. So the WebSocket stuff that you're using for, like you're saying, when someone gets a notification and maybe they open like a drop down menu and it shows you what's changed. Uh, that yep. HTML that's showing in there, is that coming over the WebSocket or are you putting that together on the client side or is it triggering another request back to the server to get the partial? Or how's It's that funny, work? right? Because it's really this mosaic now. It's like a big patchwork of all sorts of different techniques that work better or worse in certain cases. When we first put together the menu structure for Basecamp 3, I did the whole thing over WebSockets. I actually did it I did it with a WebSocket thing that sent JSON back and forth, and then I did some local renders. Okay. What I realized was there's not enough benefit in that. Um, all the drawbacks of maintaining your templates twice and dealing with um, serializing JSON and unserializing that again and, and building basically client side and receive from that was not worth it for the menu um, drop downs. Yeah. In those cases, the only thing we use the WebSocket for is to send the little um, notification bubbles. Like, hey, there's five new in this room. So that comes down over the WebSocket. But when you then open a menu, it's a completely regular request. Right, it's a. It just requests this um, little bit of, of HTML over um, over AJAX, and that goes through the natural cycle because that's also the initial cycle we can use to to build the request in the first place. We can reuse the templates. We can do all this stuff. Then, if you take something like um, the chat, for example, those messages coming down the wire, they arrive as as little HTML chunks. We built very very little HTML on the client side. In some cases, we do. Um, like our uh, brand new uh, WYSIWYG editor tricks, um, that is actually a full-on client-side MVC app. Like it, it does all of its construction on the um, on the client side. But 
in most other cases, we prefer to stick with server-side generated HTML when we can because they provide the greatest amount of reuse and they're the easiest flow to fit into and they have all these sort of benefits of the simplicity of the server-side render model. So we treat that as the baseline and then the jump above that to a client-side MVC or going JSON or something is when that can't get fast enough. Um, when there are sort of fidelity issues with that where you just feel like, eh, this isn't this isn't right. Like an example of that is, is uh, a date picker, right? So in Basecamp, you can um, add entries to a schedule, and when you pick the date of that, you get presented with this little um, with this little calendar. And that calendar is, is all client side when you navigate between the months and so forth, because that level of fidelity just if that had to request something from the server, it wouldn't feel right. But what I found, and and one of the lessons that sticking with polling for so long gave me was that there's a bunch of accepted wisdom on like, oh, you have to use client-side MC if you want to get the fidelity or the speed of the, the user interaction that feels really great, like most of the time. And I've actually found like it's the opposite, like the min min minority of the time, do you need that technique? And when you then, you need it, you need it. Like th that's sort of how it is. Like tricks are text um, editor wouldn't work again if every keystroke had to go back to a server and then that had to figure something out, right? That doesn't work. But for all these other cases, for example, the drop-down menus, it works awesome to do uh, server-side. So you can have this lovely mosaic and the mosaic is really facilitated in, in many cases through something like Turpolinks, this layer that simulates, in some cases, the client-side MVC feel, or at least this notion of the persistent process um, without requiring you to do all this work on the, on the client-side. That's, as I said, that's also how we use the WebSockets. Uh, even individual chat lines are rendered on the server-side and sent down to the client. Um, which then makes it such that we can reuse those templates for all sorts of other things like uh, transcript navigation or for search or other aspects of the application. Have you been able to avoid any like template duplication? Like there's some stuff that needs to be rendered on the client side that you've, you know, you've explained because it just is a better fit, like the text editor. It doesn't sound like there's any situation where you would need to render the text stuff server side anyways, but have you been able to kind of draw a clean line between stuff that's it's either rendered on the client or rendered on the server or have you had to do some of that duplication in some places in, in almost all cases so it's funny because with our text editor what actually happens is so we render um we render the html appearance of a document once it's marked up like hey these are the bullets these are the bolds these are the quotes and so forth right that rendering is done on the client side and then what we send to the server side is the entire html bundle so in that case, the templates actually live on the client side, not on the server side. They never lived on the server side. We never do a translation of a document tree or an abstract um, implementation of that and then render it on the server side. The one case I think where we've had duplication, if I'm trying to remember correctly, is um, for chat lines. The initial, when you say something in a chat, um, we render that client side for the person typing. Sure, that makes so sense. So that you can see something right away. Um, but we only implemented a subset of those features. So, for example, if you do um, slash play space danger zone 
in Campfire, it plays like the Danger Zone. <laughs> um, it plays like a little little tune that's like uh, the theme music of um, I the, forget uh, the movie. The Top Gun. Yeah, the song? Top Gun movie. Yeah. Exactly, the <laughs> Top Gun movie. Right, like into the Danger Zone. Anyway, <laughs> on the client side, it has none of that logic. When you say slash play space Danger Zone, it'll just very quickly show you that that's what you typed. Then it'll send that to the server. The server will see, oh, this is a play action. This needs to be rendered as a sound with a play and an autoplay and point to a certain MP3 and so on. Then it sends that back and we replace what we locally rendered uh, with that new notion and it plays, right? So it, it has this just tiny bit of uh, duplication in terms of just the raw text input. Like we have a template for that on the client side and we have a template for that on the server side, but anything advanced, only lives server side. Yeah, it sounds like it's something you guys are very careful to avoid as much as possible. Hugely so. And and that's also what's been driving the strategy around the native apps because every single time you take on one of these pieces of duplication, we talk about duplication in terms of client-side JavaScript and server-side rendering, but there's the same level of duplication if you do a native feature and an HTML feature. Now you're duplicating, again, the visual logic to display this thing. And if you want to make changes, well... All of a sudden, you have to make changes in a bunch of different places. Like, if you have a fully native iOS app, a fully native Android app, um, client side MVC that communicates with the server over JSON, and an initial render of the HTML from server side uh, render templates, you have four places to change anything when you want to roll out a new feature. I mean, that is just not something that's compatible with the organizational shape of a company that has 12 developers. Maybe that's compatible with an organizational shape, someone who has 100 developers, um, or a far, far simpler app. I mean, Basecamp is a very substantial app. It's a very broad app. It has many, many, many screens because we sort of, that's just what we do, right? If, if you do a, a smaller apps with a smaller surface area, perhaps it's easier. Um, I mean, many things that start as, say, iOS apps and perhaps just have five different screens, like... Um, Instagram or something, right? Like the surface area of Instagram is small. So the cost of implementing Instagram across a bunch of different platforms is not that large because you're not changing that many things. If you take something like Basecamp, which I, I don't even know the count, but it might be 150 screens that we have, 150 individual screens, right? If you try to implement and keep in sync that across four or five platforms, you need a huge team. So it just isn't, it isn't a pattern we can choose, which goes back to the whole genesis of Ruby on Rails. Like, I got involved with Ruby and Ruby on Rails because I could not see a path where I could create Basecamp by myself. Um, the organizational shape of Basecamp at the time being developer of one with two <laughs> designers on it yeah. and treating, not even having a f this as a full-time endeavor, uh, doing it on the side and wanting to do it in just like six months, right? I could not see the current technical solutions um, fitting that organizational shape. So I had to come up with something else. And that's where we are with a lot of these things, that these, the organizational shapes of, of Basecamp and small teams is what's driving the technical design of Ruby Rails, it's driving technical design of Turbolinks 5, it's driving the technical design of all these things and the organizational or the technical 
architectural patterns of stuff like uh, Russian doll caching and native hybrids and so on and so forth. Yeah. Are there trade-offs to doing it the way that you guys do it? Like, is there anything that you wish uh, you could do differently that you would be able to do in a large organization? Or do you think just the combination of the small team working the way that you guys work is just, you know, the ultimate way to go with no disadvantages? Absolutely, there's trade-offs. That's your, that's why this is interesting. If this was just clear-cut and a good fit for everyone, I mean, we wouldn't even be having this discussion, right? Like, it'd just be, oh, that's all problem. What's interesting is when you, for example, when you build hybrid apps, you're not getting 100% of the fidelity. Like, if you went 100% native, you'd get 100% of the fidelity. If, I mean, all the other things being equal, that you had excellent people who could do the native apps. There's tons of native apps done by slightly less than excellent people, perhaps, <laughs> that end up being far worse than even simple web applications, right? But let's put that to a side. Let's say if you, could, if you have the skills and capability to build the best of the best, um, if you built everything in native, that can be a better user experience. The trade-off is, do you want the organization that goes with that? Um, and in my case, Ethno. No fucking way. If, even if I would have the very best peak 100% base camps of base camps across all platforms, there's no fucking way I'm trading the organization I have now for an organization of 300 people. I don't want to work at a place with 300 people. So that's just off the table for me, right? And you guys have found people. a way to build something that you're still super proud of regardless. Yes. That to me is what's so much more interesting. It goes to a lot of other things I find interesting in product development. In some cases, um, like I'm into cars, right? So there, there's a bunch of cars, or well, not a bunch. There's a small handful of cars built where like sky's the limit. Like they really had no major budgetary constraints. They had no timeline constraints. Like the Bugatti Veyron, for example, right? Is this prestige project for the VW group and they spent endless amounts of money and endless amounts of time doing it. That's phenomenal, excellent great achievement for engineering and so on. But in many ways, what I find more interesting is a company that has to put a car together for like $22,000. Like the amount of trade-offs you have to make at $22,000 versus the amount of trade-offs you have to make at a car that's like a million dollars or something crazy is really interesting. So I often find the, uh, the implementation of that $22,000 car far more interesting. Because the trade-offs were so much more acute and people had to really weigh their options. Like, where do we get the biggest bang for the buck? How do we get this $22,000 car to feel more like a $32,000 car, right? Um, that is some real serious artisanship um, <laughs> that I can just, I really appreciate. Because I, I feel a connection to that. Because that's what we are with Basecamp, right? We're competing against plenty of products that have like hundreds of millions of dollars either in VC or corporate backing or Microsoft's or Apple's or blah, blah, blah. People who have far more resources than we do, right? And we have to compete with better trade-offs. We have to have better picks about what matters and what doesn't matter. And not only just that we can be passed off as like sort of good enough as these other things, but we can get passed off as better than these other things. And that's what I find super interesting if again if we go with the car metaphor uh perhaps my favorite single car of all time is the porsche 911 the porsche 911 is sort of it's an expensive sports car but there are many 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 other 
expensive cor- sports cars that are far more expensive, far more elaborate, right? The 911 not only has it stood the test of times of sort of 50 years in production in its own basic configuration, it does so many things so well. Well, it's a sports car. Well, it's actually also a great car for people with kids. I have a three-year-old. He fits in the back. In the back, um, we can actually go places with the family in it. We can go shopping. Like we can do. It has such a breadth of abilities at a price point that's far less than a lot of the competition it gets compared against to in terms of drivability and so on. I just go like, what an amazing achievement that that thing exists and then has the legacy that it has and so on. So that's sort of one of the inspirations. And I try for us to think about like, how can we build base camp like a Porsche 911? (laughs) That's an awesome way to think about it. A little bit of a side note. If you had to choose between the Zonda or the Agera, what one would you keep? Um... I, I don't like to make choices at sort of that level. I, I <laughs> deeply and truly respect both organizations for different aspects of it. I think no one does flair and extravagance and emotion like the Italians. But at the same time, uh, no other car company that I know of has the depth of engineering talent with the size of the company that uh the suites with uh, christian for koenigsegg like the amount of systems in that agera that uh christian himself has come up with with a team of <laughs> surprise surprise around or slightly less than 50 people so you can see there's a connection there right like i, I see a connection with someone if you take something like the the koenigsegg competes against something like a, a bugatti i mean bugatti has the backing of vw all the resources in the world all the time in the world christian von koenigsegg started from very, comparably speaking, humble beginnings in like uh, the late 90s and had to build all this up by scratch. And he created all these systems. They make their own brakes, they make their own ECUs, they make their own engine, they make their own all sorts of things, interiors, blah, 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 right? Um, so I appreciate them for, for sort of different elements. Awesome. Um, diving back into the code stuff, I'd love to hear about the testing strategy behind Basecamp 3, especially after, you know, the RailsConf 2014 keynote. Yep. So one thing that came out of that was um, we pulled some levels of testing up to a higher level, but not enough. So from Rails 5, um, one of the pushes that came off this is that all controller tests are now essentially integration tests. And... Before, with controller tests, we had this notion of, um, well, you, can, you don't even have to involve the view. So it was less of a black box, and we did things like, hey, let's test the assignments. So if a controller sets like um, a collection of records, we'll just test that collection of records, not necessarily the rendering of that collection of records. I came to really dislike that uh, insertion. Like I came to very much appreciate treating the controller and the view together as that's the appropriate level of testing and that it found more bugs for a better bang of the buck. I think this actually pairs very well to the discussion we just had. In testing, there's sometimes this notion of like, hey, if you had all the time, money, and resources in the world, what would be the perfect amount of testing? Then people talk, oh, we test in depth, in depth. Every single layer would have its own testing. And to test each layer individually, you can use a carefully picked set of mocks. And like everything gets tested at every layer all the way up. And I just go like, okay, again, that's fine. If you have all the resources in the world, like that's not what I'm going to do. 
that is not compatible with my organizational shape or my expectations of productivity. Because I think there's a dramatic drop-off in payoff when you have that deep levels of testing. I want to do the minimum amount of testing that gives me the enough confidence that I trust my software. Trust my software enough that I feel comfortable, generally speaking, shipping it with the combination of exploratory testing, which I think is another interesting debate that um, exploratory testing or manual testing has been poo-pooed for a long time by TDD advocates and others for like, oh, this is not reproducible. We can't run this with a single command. It hands over key responsibility of the development cycle to others than developers. It's going to lead to throw over the wall testing and all sorts of ills. All legitimate concerns, but I think in many cases it threw the uh, baby out with the bathwater. Um, anyway, we could discuss that afterwards if, if you want to, but the key aspect of testing for Basecamp 3 and by extension Rails 5 is this notion that integration testing, testing against controllers and views at the same time gives you an incredible bang for the buck. Um, and it really susses out a lot of issues that you wouldn't find if you were just testing against controllers, and it makes them far more resilient than if you were testing through something like Capybara or other true browser-driven testing. Um, that aspect of testing, that full system testing, I think still has a lot of appeal, and I really want to do more of it. I think the state of the art is currently in a developing space. Um, developing state of affairs where there's a lot of compromises you currently have to do and a lot of finagling and a lot of brittleness that you have to accept to do true system level testing where you're driving all these tests through the browser on top of the fact that it's kind of slow, right? So it, it drives you to actually have more layers of testing once you do that. Um, because the browser-driven test tends to be so slow that you can't actually run a very comprehensive and full suite of them very often, and which means that then you need another set of tests to duplicate a lot of the tests that you're doing at the system level at a model level or somewhere else where you can run them fast. The magic sweet spot for me and what I think has the most promise in terms of being a good trade-off is this integration step where you're testing basically all major levels. You're testing controller that hits the model that renders the view. You're testing the whole MVC stack. It doesn't test everything in the same sense, right? It's not driving it through the browser, so you're not testing things like JavaScript, which often is important, and you miss some of that, and we have missed some of that, and that is a reason to do system-level testing. Um, but if you're building your app in a way that uses turplings, for example, and not and client or uh, server-side rendering and so forth, you actually don't need it as, as much, which is another sort of side benefit of doing it that way. Um, so I'm really bullish on integration testing. And for Rails 5, we're switching all controller testing to that, encouraging people not to test this layer in between, not to do assignments testing or other sort of wedge testing between controllers and views, but treating the whole thing as controller views and models in one grouping. Um, so we have a lot of those in... Uh, Basecamp 3, but we also still have a bunch of model tests. I think once you are testing primarily model behavior, that's great and it, it, it's a good uh, way to go. So, summary of a state of affairs, still a fair amount of model testing. Um, integration testing gives me the most confident that it, things actually work and then we're just now starting up a, a batch again on system testing because we have areas of the application that are heavily JavaScript dependent and they are insufficiently tested right now and, and 
I'm going to be even happier when we have more of that. And hopefully that work can inform a model that in Rails 5.1, we can ship something in the box where system testing is not so brittle, at least not in the technical underpinning, the glue sense of the word. Setting up system testing with Turbolinks and other JavaScript frameworks is still, it's not where it needs to be for it to feel like the flawless Rails out-of-the-box experience that we wanted to. Yeah. I don't get to work with Rails uh, full-time, so I don't know all of the details about kind of the difference between, or sorry, how the integration tests work compared with like a Capybara test. What does it look like when you actually write, you know, an integration test that hits the controller and tests the view in Rails? Are you specifying like an endpoint that you want to hit, or are you just specifying a method on a controller that you want to invoke? Yeah, so control testing work with specifying a method on a um, on a controller, a specific controller. Integration testing takes that up a level and it specifies a route. Yeah. So you're hitting the router, which actually means you're also testing the router, which is a great thing because you weren't testing the router before when you were just hitting um, a method on a controller. So you're testing the routing. That you Usually you hit that with, um, with an HTTP request. That means you, you're by hand putting together the request. So if you're doing a post, you're writing out what the parameters should be, which means you're not testing the form. So like that's one of the things you miss, right? Like if you do system testing that goes through the browser, you're also testing the form. Um, that's one of the caveats I've been okay giving up, and I've not felt like we've lost that much on. But where it's interesting, I think, is so you construct this manual HTTP request, but then what you test the result against is the view. You do, um, we do, it's called assert selects. You're asserting against the DOM that you receive back. Yeah. And doing like so you're saying, oh, I added this thing, exactly, like XPath kind of thing. Um, like, hey, this H1 is supposed to have this title. Um, so there's some, you're tying it to some extent to the DOM, which means that like if you rearrange the DOM or change this that H1 to an H2, you sometimes need to update your tests. Um, but it's far, far less brittle than when you do the full system level testing where you're driving everything through the browser. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How how much confidence do you get from your test suite? Like, if everything passes, do you feel confident to deploy the application without doing anything else? Yes and no. Yes, from the sense that when we have a good level of integration tests, I feel confident like that the app majorly works as designed in some sense. But that's where exploratory testing really comes in and adds a different layer of confidence a layer of confidence that all the things that i did not think of as a programmer have also been addressed and that's been one of the big lessons for us at Basecamp. in just the last couple of years we've added um, a small qa team to Basecamp. like for the first many many years all the testing was just done by designers and programmers who were also the people who implemented the features so they knew sort of instinctually, I, this is how it's supposed to work, so I'll test it along those paths. Would kind of make us crappy testers. You can't wear both hats that well at the same time. You need a separation of responsibilities. You need, in my mind at least, if you want a high degree of confidence that you think, does, think doesn't just work as you designed it, but also handles gracefully all the ways or things you didn't think about, right? You need... QA people who were not part of the development, who were not privy to all the choices that went into how to make the thing work the way it works, which means that they can be a surrogate or an aggregate for a large group of users because they come with all the edge cases and they do all the manual exploratory testing that TDD and so on have devalued to some extent. 
Um, and I think bringing that back and doing more of that um, has raised the quality game at Basecamp more than any individual change in automated testing strategy that we've employed over the many years that I've worked on trying to push that state of the art forward. Um, there is, to some extent, just no replacing that notion of exploratory testing people who just try to sniff out and break your app in all sorts of ways that users will end up breaking your app, but you did not expect or anticipate as a programmer. Yeah, it's impossible to automate every single possible set of input into the application, right? Like that's, I think it's, it's irresponsible to think that you can. Yeah, you're just not in the right frame of mind. When you build something, you're not in the right frame of mind to, to poke sufficient holes in it. Um, and I think that is unfortunately an art that's been somewhat lost with the adoption of TDD and, and other automated testing techniques and testing principles that put the chief owners of testing onto the developer and the developer alone. Um, I think we actually regressed as an industry from doing so. I know all the reasons why we got to where we were and like all the problems that came with the approach that, oh, testing is not something programmers need to worry about at all. But I think there's, the pendulum swung too far into the direction of automated programmer-driven testing. And now, at least at Basecamp, once we swung it back to be a partnership of that plus the exploratory testing, we ended up in a far better place than either of the two extremes provided alone. Do you find the the manual testing more valuable for like the mobile stuff than for the web stuff, or do you kind of apply the same strategy across both? Um, it is more valuable for the mobile stuff and for heavy JavaScript application purely by the fact that it is harder and more brittle to write automated testing for that kind of stuff. So it's it's a funny thing because there's on the one hand you go like, well, I don't want to just push all sorts of stuff to manual testing. Because, like, I can't be bothered as a programmer to do it. But on the other hand, there are levels of testing where the trade-off and the cost, it's cost-efficient in some cases to just do more exploratory testing and less automated testing uh, when the things are very hard to test. One sort of, I get the argument say, well, if it's hard to test, you should just make it easier to test. Well, yeah, sure. And I think that there's a long-term progress being made in that direction but for the time being for the sample for example at system level testing we are where we are and while we continue to push the state of the art forward and make things easier to test automatically um let's take advantage of of sort of the um exploratory testing as we have it and also again they find things that you're not going to find through the automated tests so you need it anyway um and that's just comes back to getting the best bang for the buck uh, which applies just as well in programming as it does in testing. For sure. Uh, one last topic that I'd like to get uh, your insight on a little bit before we get going. I'm looking at the rake stats image that you put up on Twitter. I think it was a little bit before Basecamp 3 came out. And you guys have a ton of controllers in this application. I think a lot more than most people probably normally have uh, as far as the ratio compares to the rest of the app. What are you guys doing differently there that you think other people could learn from? Sure. What I've come to embrace is that being almost fundamentalistic about when I create a new controller to stay adherent to REST has served me better every single time. Um, every single time I've regretted 
the state of my controllers, it's been because I've had too few of them. I've been trying to overload things too heavily. Um, so in Basecamp 3, we spin off controllers every single time there's even sort of a sub-resource that makes sense, which can be things even like filters. Like say, you have this screen, it looks in a certain state. Well, if you apply a couple of filters or drop-downs to it, it's in a different state. Sometimes we just take those states and we make a brand new controller for it. The heuristics I use to drive that is whenever I have the inclination that I want to add a method on a controller that's not part of the uh, default five or whatever rest actions that we have by, by default, make a new controller and just call it that. So let's say um, you have an inbox controller and you have an index that shows everything that's in the inbox and then you might have another action where you go like, oh, I want to see like the pending just show me the pending emails in that or something like that, right? So you add an action called pending. That's a very common pattern, right? And a pattern that I used to follow more. Now I just go like, no, no, no. Have a new controller that's called inboxes, colon, colon, pendings controller that just has a single method called index. And what I found is that the freedom that gives you is that each controller now has its own scope, which is with its own set of filters that apply. Another heuristics to apply this on is if you have a before or after or around filters, that you scope down to just a few actions and that that scoping down is not the traditional either member or collection like index and um, and create versus show, update, and delete. Like that's a natural one to differ on. But if it goes beyond that, say, I, I only want to apply this to sort of show but not edit or whatever, or there are different states of these individual actions, that to me is a smell that you have a you need another controller. So we've had great controller proliferation and especially controller proliferation within uh, namespaces. So uh, let's say we have a messages controller and then below that messages controller, we might have a messages drafts controller and we might have a messages, I don't know, trashes controller and we might have all these other sub-controllers or sub-resources within the same thing. Um, And that's been a I'd say huge success. Sometimes we even have different controllers because the authentication patterns or other things are, are different. One example is um, when you see a schedule in Basecamp 3 for the HTML view, that's one controller. And then we actually have a separate controller when we do the iCalendar feed for that. Even though they're displaying the same sense of data, and in many cases I'd go like, oh, well, that's just another MIME type. You could just add it in a respond to block. But because the authentication mechanics are quite different, the schedule view you see in HTML, you, we require you to be logged in and all that stuff versus the feed, the iCalendar feed has to be authenticated through a token uh, where you don't have to be logged in. It's a, it's a different wrapping. And in those cases, we split it off to a separate controller as well. In, the, in that sort of case where you have two controllers that are returning the same data, but you need two controllers for reasons beside what the data is that you're trying to return, do you feel any pressure to like somehow abstract that out so there's no sense of duplication? Or have you already done that? Or is it not a big concern? Um, sometimes. Uh, I think the I can live with duplication of like one or two lines, generally speaking. Because sometimes I want to think like overdrying things make them stiff and inflexible. But I'd say, generally speaking, our controllers, if they have, I'm just throwing heuristics out as they sort of come to mind. These are not thoroughly vetted or uh, peer reviewed. Um, (laughs) If I have more than say three private methods for a controller, that tells me "Mm, there's probably too much logic here. If I have more than say two to max three lines of 
model calls, uh, I treat the response block as sort of a separate aspect. But if I have more than two to three lines of, of model calls, then it's also called for an extraction. So in many cases, the extraction happens just pulling things up into the model. That's a good way to do it. Or the other way is to call things up occasionally. I have like out of, we have what, 150 controllers in Basecamp 3. I have like a handful of like five controller I'm not even sure what the best word for this is, like helper classes, helper Ruby classes, or if they were for the view, we would call them presenters. But kind of like presenters, but for the controller, that needs kind of, that's needs a pattern. Usually these are just pure Ruby uh, classes, but they serve some level of abstraction where they're kind of part of the view or part of the model, but not really because they're, they might sometimes like they're more tangled with concerns of the controller, for example, like where should things should redirect to or, or whatever. Um, but that's a very rare occurrence. Most of the time I can get away with just pulling things up into a model, pulling things out to a presenter for the view, or having uh, concerns. So concerns is something we use very liberally ac across the uh, code base in, in Basecamp 3 and, and all other versions of Basecamp. We have concerns both for uh, models and for controllers, where we extract these Shared pieces of responsibility, um, particularly when they don't rely on shared state. So that to me is like, that's the telltale sign that this is not so much a concern as it is something else that can be encapsulated on its own. Which it's funny because concerns for the model and concerns for the controller are actually quite similar to what helpers are for views. So some people have a very negative uh, perception of, of helpers in the views they go like well that's basically php it's just bit one big ass namespace where like tons of individually floating function calls are being called and i go yes that was exactly the architectural model that we designed helpers off and i think that <laughs> model is totally and utterly awesome it's one of my favorite features of php where it breaks down where it's not great and where you need something else like a presenter uh, or in the case of models and controllers, a separate object record or, or something else to encapsulate things in an object-oriented way is when you have shared state and multiple method calls that depend on that shared state together. A clear smell for me is when you have helper calls that call many other helper calls and passes sort of basically state to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have that, then they're a tangled mess. You need to abstract that shit and just create a real class for it. Um, but there's tons of cases where that's not the case, where it truly is a single one-off method call that just takes a couple of parameters and gives the things back to you in the form that they should be. Um, and that works at all layers of the MVC stack and, and does so in a great way. And I think people have... They're too in love with the object-oriented programming if they cannot see the benefits of... Yeah, um, just a couple of functions. Exactly. Sometimes a couple of functions is the right thing. It's just all you need. Um, and trying to wrap everything up to be an object because you can only see the way of the world through the lens of object-oriented programming, you're at a loss. Um, and I think that is some of the frictions some programmers sometimes have with Basic or with uh, Ruby and Rails is that it's multi-paradigm. We absolutely take the best from everywhere and mash it together. Hey, best ideas from PHP, the one flat namespace, boom, let's put it into helpers. Best ideas for sort of tall and intricate frameworks and sometimes like Java, great inspiration. Um, 
some of these ideas for uh, dealing with web sockets and channels and so on. Hey, um, Elixir and, and Phoenix, let's hey, let's take some of those ideas. Like, let's just grab all the best ideas from all the best programming languages and put them together with no damn allegiance to any single paradigm. The paradigm is there's no paradigm, or there's we will pick the best of all the paradigms. It's a postmodern framework in that sense that there's not this single driven one idea that goes all the way down, um, which to me, that's the essence of Ruby. Ruby is that language too. It was a, it's a language that does not have a, a paradigm sort of focus on just a single thing. Ruby picks the best things in functional programming, imperative programming, uh, object-oriented programming, and all sorts of different styles of programming, and it meshes it all together into this wonderful potpourri of awesomeness, right? Um, like, hey, uh, a programming language where Matt openly admits, hey, I took a bunch of good ideas from Perl. Like, that's something I can get a, behind. Not, Which is why, for example, even though lots of respect for it, something like Smalltalk or Lisp has zero appeal to me. They're modern languages in the sense of they take a single idea and drive it to the nth degree, right? Let's Same thing with many uh, functional uh, program languages, right? Let's model the entire world of everything as this one thing, this one idea, this one concept. And I just go like, yeah, but that's, there's lots of things that doesn't fit in that. Maybe that works great for the 80% of the cases, and then it's a fucking pain in the ass for the last 20%. Um, so awesome to kind of finish off is there anything else that you guys did in Basecamp 3 that you think is interesting and worth sharing i think we could go for another five <laughs> hours on that um so i'm gonna write up uh post detailing a bunch of the specifics of the um Basecamp 3 technical stack and all the things we extracted into rails 5 rails 5 is simply chock full of Basecamp 3-isms, uh, things we needed in Basecamp 3 to make it awesome. And um, we're just getting on the cusp of releasing Beta 1, so it's it's a good time to dive into all this stuff. And I say it's never been a better time to dive into Rails, like the, the Rails framework and the joy with which I had just writing, uh, what are we up to now, 25,000 line code app Basecamp 3 in it. It's just been astounding. I just... It brings a smile to my face um, every single day I sit down and program in it, um, in part because Ruby continues to be ever as awesome as it was uh, 12, 13 years I picked it up the first time. And, and Ruby on Rails has really been able to move with the times and, and, and keep up with the developments that we've had and this latest approach on WebSockets and APIs and so on. It's just been a, a pure pleasure and a joy. So... Um, if if anyone listening have still not um, given a choice or gave it a choice and, and went somewhere else, I'd say uh, Rails 5 is a great time to dive back in and, and give it another go. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time and coming on the show again. I learned tons. It was awesome to talk to you about all this stuff. Uh, what's the best way for people to kind of find out what you're up to and what's going on? Sure. Twitter is always good. It's at uh, DHH. And I've recently started posting most of my long form posts on medium and on medium it's at dhh as well awesome all right well thanks again david my pleasure if anyone's interested in show notes for this episode they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 32 thanks to laracasts for sponsoring the podcast as always uh rate and review the show on itunes let me know what you think see you next time